I love that you have a Chicago mug. Like you still have. Oh, I got, I still love Chicago so much. Like my sister lives there. I love Chicago. It's the, it's a phenomenal city. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we haven't seen each other. I don't think we've talked since we had that big fight 20 years ago. (laughs) We did that huge fight. And I don't know, 20 years, I don't know what we were fighting for, but it was a whole. I, you know, I remember her name and, um, (laughs) <laughs> and I'm glad you married her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She still talks about you constantly. It's yeah. also that she talks about you constantly. No, we uh, text you They got away, stuff like that. You know. Yeah, I think once, but like once you're kind of in deep with kids and stuff, like yeah. I encouraged her to stay with you. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, we got pregnant, so I could trap her, so she couldn't leave, and so she couldn't go back to you, which is what she always, she's always wanted. Yeah, that's what I did with my, um, my wife. Do you have kids? Uh, I have um I have three children. Hey! Yeah, thank you. It's not like they were just born. Um, it's uh-huh. <laughs> 117. You're a little late to oh, the uh, celebration. Yeah, you're Holy a little God. late to the celebration, Mike. Did you do all uh, the college stuff with them? Did you or him or her? Did you guys do all the three boys? So yeah. did I do did I do what? What was your question? Oh, the 17-year-olds getting ready, if not in college, getting ready to go to college. Is that correct? Yeah, you know he's 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 investigating, so you know it's it's helpful. I it's you know my area of expertise is helping people with college. It's one of the things that that I that I'm uh, very good at. But what I what I find, I, I think Eli Eli's my oldest. He's starting to listen to me. Like recently, he's been like, I think he's found that I, like he listens a little bit. It's weird. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> there's a window of like respect. Like he respects what I do and is interested. He's even said to my wife, Stephanie, uh, that's my wife. Um, <laughs> love for you to meet sometime. It's great. Sure. Um, so Stephanie, Steph, uh, he'll say, mom, don't answer. You're not the expert. No, really? And um, I felt bad for a moment. And then I was like, well, no, you're right. You know, this is, I got this one, Steph. Oh. He seems like he's going through. I mean, my son just turned 13 and they are, you know, he's fine, you know, but he is a little more distant. He like goes to his room a little more, you know, like we used to be buddy, buddy. And we're still buddy, buddy, but like he hangs out with his friends more, you know, so you can sort of see the separation and also sort of the, the fighting back, you know, he's like more vocal when he doesn't like something or he goes, I don't want to do that and stuff like that. So, you know, I mean, maybe your son has gone through that. He's coming back around, you know, when they learn to appreciate their parents, we'll see. Yeah. It's like that. Um, what's that Tom Hanks? What's the movie? It's like Apollo. What Apollo is it? Where they Apollo 11? Apollo. It's an Apollo movie. Yeah. And it's the part where Tom Hanks and the crew are out of like radio waves. It's like it's like the radio silence part where like where they, they leave them for like 30 seconds and then and then they rejoin them and they're like, you know, Houston, you know, we're we're back. Can you can you hear us, Apollo? Can you hear us? And that is what it's like. That's interesting. It's, it's like this, 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 and I got a 14 year old, uh, Harrison's my 14 year old and, uh, he, he's great. All my kids are are great. <laughs> be off of, I'm like, and I've got a, you know, I got another one, but we're not going to talk. You're pretty good. It was Apollo 13, by the way. That's what it is. Yeah. Apollo 11. That was a really good flight, but 13 was the more memorable one. And, um, I think, yeah. It could be. Did you look it up while we were talking? I did sort of look it up, but I did one of those really things where you just look really fast. So you don't really investigate. Let's see. Apollo 13. Was, that, was it the movie? 
which did they make the movie about? I believe Apollo 13 was the movie in 1995. By Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. And it's good to have the facts. Yeah. And uh, people can watch that movie. And there is a point where <laughs> the, there is radio silence. And I feel like that's kind of what it's like with uh, with kids as they go through this. And, and also, uh, Mike, do you like being called Mike or Michael? Either one. Mike is fine. I like calling you Mike. That um, yeah. Right, but can you say too? Oh, I'm sorry. Harley. You look exactly the same. I don't mean to interrupt you, but you look exactly the same. You have not changed in like what, 20 years. You look exactly the same. <laughs> well, you know, I do this mud skin routine um, and I do it three times a day. And, and the thing you can't see, I'll, I'll go like this. I'm going to bend my hair, my head down and you can see. Oh, you have a full head of hair. You well, gotta, if you look back there, you can see it. It's, it's Mike, coming. That's if you have to, if you have to look twice to find a bald spot, you're not balding. That's, I mean, that's nice of you to say, but right. But. You have a, a, a big blush head of hair. So my hair has been the big thing. You know, I have to tell you, I, so here's the thing. Like, I like talking to you because I just remember you being a nice guy. I remember, I remember your ego though. Do you still have a big ego? <laughs> I did. I didn't know. No. I, I know. I wish I had an ego. I need an ego. <laughs> that was going to be my first question in my notes was, my first question in my notes was, um, do you have a big ego? <laughs> <laughs> because. The background is you're one of the nicest people. Like you, you really are a kind person. And I always remember you being like, you have a very soft touch. And I don't mean like you ever touched. It wasn't like we physically touched, but just in terms of your persona, you are like, you, you, you're not looking for trouble. You don't want to stir the pot. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I would say that's accurate. Not a big pot stir, just a regular Joe. Yeah. But you're just there. Yeah. You're there making some observations. You don't need to be the center of attention. Sure. You just are in the room and you have interesting things to say, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's why I kind of went in the writing field or whatever is because you're not the main focus. You're kind of like behind the scenes or whatever, you know, just doing your thing. And then somebody else is like the star or whatever. Which is, which is right. kind of- you don't need all that attention. And I think that's why you're very easy to be around and someone who even years later, like, I feel like we, you know, we, we always had a nice, we just had a nice friendship. And yeah. You're hilarious. Friendship. Like, yeah. Are we friends? We were we friends. Okay. It was an improbable, you know, but you were, you were a great man, super hilarious, a nice guy. You're great. I have nothing but respect for you. Yeah. So that's nice. We, we don't hate each other. That's why yeah. even, even joking around, because if someone doesn't know sarcasm, because there are that's some true. people who don't know sarcasm, Mike and I don't have a beef. And, we don't have a beef. I've never even seen his wife. Yeah, Camille. I don't know where she's uh, at a book fair right now. Yeah, she's school book fair. So yeah, what? Well, I will yeah. find her. Yeah, she's doing great. <laughs> she's she's a wonderful human being. She's great. You know, so what I was going to say, Mike, is I'm glad that you found a great human being partner. Is I find myself wanting to be funnier with you, but the thing is, I'm not trying. Like this is just. Yeah, you're. Yeah, this is a rift. Like this is just how we talk. Yeah. There's no attempt at humor here. It's just two people just talking, just normal people right. talking. But then I'm hyper aware that you're a comedy writer and it's like, oh shit, am I trying to impress Mike? Like, do, does someone think that I'm trying to be extra funny today? I don't think so. I think the but people I'm not. are just normal, normal Harlan. Right. Maybe but I like it. Yeah. 
If anything, I'm impressed by you. You've written many books. You're like, like oh. you said, you're describing yourself as an expert in the field. Like, I wish I could one day describe myself as an expert in any field. You know, like that's a pretty phenomenal. And you have books behind you. Like, it's really impressive. You know. Well, I I appreciate I appreciate your you know your your kind words, Mike. No, they're true. This, this is you know what I'm so impressed by you because if you're gonna we're gonna learn how you became. A, a, a comedy writer. I mean, starting off working at the Late Show with Stephen Colbert in the or, oh, you're at the you're starting with the Colbert Report. Sorry, Colbert like, Report, yeah, like, 2005, yeah. Like in 2005 and 2005, you started working for Colbert, and I was and I was talking to Andy. Andy helps me produce stuff and produce the show, and just a good dude. And I was like, I was like 2005, like like I didn't get invited to be on the Colbert Report. Like, what did Mike do? Like, how did he get to be on Colbert? And I was just like fighting to just figure anything out. But that's like a big deal, dude. Well, it was the improv world. You know, you and I are both from the improv world or whatever. And like, I just did a lot of improv. And then that sort of, remember in Chicago, there's a company called You Don't Know Jack or Jelly Vision. They made that that game, You Don't Know Jack. It's still online today. You can still play. You know, it's, it's pretty popular. But I, I wrote for that. And there was a person there that I worked with named Allison Silverman. And uh, we just stayed in touch. And then I, when that company kind of like laid off everybody, I panicked and went to grad school because I always wanted to do comedy, but I wasn't secure enough in myself to let's just say, I'm going to go out there for comedy. So I needed an excuse to do it. And that was grad school at NYU, which was super fun, even though I just finished paying off the loans like five years ago or whatever. <laughs> but, it's, uh, but it was really fun. And I really enjoyed grad school a lot. And then Allison and I stayed in touch. And then Allison became one of the heads at uh, the Colbert Report. And I was doing copywriting for advertising then. And we were in LA shooting a commercial for Citibank. I even forgot what it was. But like, when everybody would go out at night, I just said, oh, I'm just she just said, do you want to submit? I said, okay, I'll submit because the show just started and they needed people. And so I said, all right, I'll do it. And we didn't know if the show would last more than 13 weeks or six weeks or whatever. But, you know, when we were filming this thing, I was just sitting at the table. This, we were outdoor patio. I was just like writing this thing. And it was, it was the most fun I had writing something in a long time. I liked advertising too, too. But, you know, there you're trying to sell soap. But here you're just trying to make jokes and just trying to make yourself laugh. So I, I made myself laugh and I submitted and I didn't expect to hear anything. But then again, they just needed people really bad. So then they called me like two days later and it just sort of worked out that way, you know? And so I, I've been with Colbert like pretty much ever since, but he's a great man and it's a super fun job and I, I'm really lucky, you know? Yeah, that's, that's wild. I love that it's about people and, and um, you're mentioning Allison. Allison's great. And oh yeah, you know, Allison, she's, she's, yeah. she's, she's, she's fantastic. Well, it's like my world. So and we'll get into this. I want to get into like the path of like how you how you start off as a kid and like get to be a writer for a late night show because that just seems so far away for so many people and and there's so many different paths. So I want to make sure I get to that. But um, you know, I was always this guy who like was there. I think socially, like if I don't have a role, like like now it's easy for me to yeah. do this because my role is I'm I'm playing the role of a journalist yeah. who's who's reacquainting with someone who I know from 20 years ago who I did improv with in Chicago and I want to learn his I want to learn how he got here and I can ask all these questions because I have this very clear role and you're like and you're like oh I see your books Harlan it's cool that you have books and it's like oh I have these books so I don't have to really explain but like in the 2000 like after college I was just this awkward dude like who just didn't know like wanted didn't know what the hell he was doing and what socially the only way that i could really make friends is if i was on a team 
And Mike and I were on improv teams together at Improv Olympic. Yeah. And that's the only way I got to know you and be friends. So like Allison and all this other crew, like this is Mike, give us, give us a framework of like, who were some of the improv players when we were going through the, uh, we were going through the system. Uh, yeah. People would know. I mean, like I was on a team with Sudeikis, you know, Jason Sudeikis, um, Ike Barinholtz, who's, uh, I mean, I think he was on genealogy with him and Sudeikis with Vegas match act. I mean, Harlan Cohen, I don't know if you guys have heard of Harlan, but he was a famous guy. Um, but he was with a, Big people, but there was tons of people. I mean, like in every, like in every situation, or like in every job, or whatever. There's the people that shine and go to the top, and sometimes they deserve it. Sometimes they just get lucky, or whatever. And there's also those other people underneath that are super hilarious and super funny. You know, that are just grade A people that don't necessarily go into stardom, but like they are like the best people ever. And so, like, I surrounded myself with a lot of those people. You know, and like just like really good, really funny, really talented people that you enjoy being around. And so, like, they may not be the big stars today, but they were you know, they're the movers and shakers of improv, you know, and like the comedy world. Like, yeah. Are, yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. And just when, when, when I'm helping people to go from one place to another, I talk about people, places, and patience. It's always yeah. people, places, and patience. And I think that yeah. when someone graduates from college and, and you graduated from college, then you ended up in Chicago. And I want to, I want to, I want to go through that story of just the progression, but you were in a place improv Olympic Mm-hmm. which is something, a place a lot of people will talk about. And I know people who are just like a little bit older than us um, or, you know, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler yeah. and like that whole group. Is probably, yeah, Brian yeah, like, yeah. Like maybe two or three years in front of us, pretty close. Yeah. Del Close, I was in one of Del Close's classes. Yeah, so was I, yeah, yeah. Which is like legendary if anybody yeah. wants to look up Del Close. It's I like- know, Everybody up here goes like, you were in class with Del Close? But yeah, the legendary. It was Del- not a good class. Yeah. I have to tell you, I mean, I don't want to disparage it in any way. It was towards the very end of his, I think his, it was of his life. It was yeah. like, so I don't want to say, but it was like, uh, I should feel bad now. They said it wasn't a, it was, it was a fine class. Oh, I can agree. It was a fine class, but you know, he's like this guru status. So you always expect some, some sage wisdom. You just go, man, it's a class. Okay. That's the clarification. The expectations were so high because yeah. he's a comedy God who invented yeah. the Herald. Yeah. And then that was, uh, and he, I remember he was clearing his throat a lot. <laughs> Do you remember that? I do remember that. Yeah. A lot of clearing his throat, but yeah. So anyway, um, then we were in a place where we were surrounded by lots of people and there were, and, and we paid the thing is improv Olympic. We had to pay to take class. Right. So we paid and I don't feel bad about paying. Yeah. But it was like, but we paid to be part of something and then I had a place to go right, right, right by Wrigley field, which is so much fun. And, and then um, before shows, We'd go in the parking lot yeah. and we'd um and we'd have our like pre-show rituals, right? Right. Yeah. Wrigley Field in the background. It's really picturesque, right? Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I know. Like that it's all moved, I guess. Now they're at a different location or whatever. But yeah, there used to be yeah. rats running back by the dumpsters. One time there was a couple having sex behind a dumpster, a drunk couple. And uh, but it was always it was just chaos back then. But it was it was super fun. But yeah. Right. It was just it was just a place and a moment in in time. And um, and then there were parties yeah. occasionally. And yeah. were you friends with Dana and Julia? Were you? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I know them peripherally, but yeah. Because right. And a lot of it worked, you know, who's on your team? And there were these yeah. teams and you'd be assigned a team almost like, a like you know, in school. And then you would practice with the team and you get to know people. And I think that yeah. that idea of when you go from college or from one place to another, 
and actually like taking a class and paying for something. You've got a you've got a, a 13 year old, 13, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this idea of like, where do you make friends? Like, yeah. how do you how do you find people when you're 13? Will you go to school? You you know, does your son do sports? He does. He does like baseball and he does uh he plays basketball sometimes. He does with school, like just on like some side organizations. But it is hard, you know, like we we were in the city and we just moved to the suburbs like maybe a year ago. And so the kids were really worried about how to make friends. And like, I never did this. Like I was always kind of a loner and I always wish I had more friends. And, and the way I made friends was through improv. You know, that's the first time when I when I started doing improv in college. Like, oh, my God, there's so many. I have friends and I have friends. because I never really had that in high school. But then my son, too, like he's like starting to do these sports and like he's making friends you know and he's not really an athletic kid but like he's like making friends and the weekends he like goes out with his friends and my my daughter too she's 10 she's like she's still trying to adjust a little bit of making friends she's like one or two good friends but she's trying to expand the circle but it is hard you know like it's hard making friends but but doing activities like that like does really help like it gives you an instant friend group and it just you know the smaller groups and you make more friends that way and you feel more comfortable going to school and like in social situations like it does help. I never did that. And I wish I did do that in high school, but I think it does help a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to make friends, I think. And as you get older, you become more isolated. Do you have yeah. friends? I do have friends, but not like, you know, my friends, when I did, I did improv in college and like, uh, and I, I joined this group called Spicy Clamato at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And I remember after my second show, I leaned out the window. It was like a movie. I was leaning out the window. It was raining. I was going, my God, that was the greatest thing I ever did in my entire life. And to be honest, it really was one of the greatest things I ever did in my entire life. It was like first time I got on stage and people laughed at you and coming up at you afterwards and, hey, great job. And I go, I never experienced anything like that. And that really like changed my life, that, like that one improv class. And that's only because I had my friend Christian and we dared ourselves to go out for this like improv team just to try it, you know. And so it all kind of spun off that way. But yeah, but yeah, I don't know. But right now, I, so most of my friends are from that improv. I'm still really good friends with them. We talk every Sunday over Zoom. We all get together. But like. I made a few new friends and they're pretty good friends, but nothing's like the classic friends that you make when you're younger, at least for me anyway. That's amazing. So this was an improv group at U of I. Yeah. And we still all talk every Sunday, like the whole group of us. Wow. How many people? It's like maybe 10 people. And you just, and you'd like every, every Sunday. Yeah. I mean, you can come in and go off if you want to, but we started doing it during the pandemic and then we just kind of kept it going for a while. So that's great. I love that. So, so you're socially awkward. Yeah, I'm socially awkward. Like my, I think my wife would like, she always wants to have more people over and stuff like that. And I do too sometimes, but like, I wouldn't say I go out and say, Hey, you know, there's some people that are really good about like, I said, people over, you know, and yeah. have a big party. Like I'm like, well, all right, let's have a party. Sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But what's cool about you and your personality is you just, you know, like you can be in spaces and not, and just not feel like you need attention. Like you could, like, I think some people go to places and they feel like they're a loser if they're standing around people and don't have a purpose. But it sounds like, I don't know, you you somehow figured out how to find your people. Like, it, it, let's, and you know, let me do this. I know you're, I, I want to go back to middle school because I know this seems ridiculous, sure. but like, I want to track your, your career path, your life path. And we could do like rapid fire. Like we don't have to go back to like, you know, Mrs. Smith's class, but like, tell me real quickly. So like, where do you go to middle school? If you want to, unless your middle school is a password for like some of your privacy settings, but yeah. like, tell me middle school, high school, college, like just walk me through real quickly. Cause, Oh, I, I want you to know. And, 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 um, I did try to do some homework, Mike, I went on uh, LinkedIn. Oh yeah. And, I just started, um, yeah. And I looked for you on LinkedIn and I found a web specialist 
I found an ink. I found a, a president of Anchor Corporation. There's all these Michael Brums. I know there's um, a swine specialist at the University of Nebraska. He he deals with like pigs and how to mate them, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> it's another a dentist. Oh yeah, there's um, a dentist. Are these all you? I wish they were. I wish I was a swine specialist and a dentist, but sadly I am not. But yeah, I always do that too. Like you look and you go, oh, the, the dentist, he's, he's pretty popular. Because you're not on LinkedIn. And I think, am I on LinkedIn? I thought I was on LinkedIn, but I know maybe it's not public. I don't know. I, I just signed up really fast, but I never did anything with it. So I should go back and look at that. But. All right. So tell me, give me, give me like a quick little profile of you just as a kid, what you're interested in, where you went, just kind of give me like, who is Michael Brum? Yeah, I'll start like in middle school or grade school. We called it. I went to a Catholic school. There's only like 14 of us in the entire school. Like when I graduated eighth grade, there's only 14 of us. And it was really small and really safe. And I wouldn't say, I mean, it's hard not to be popular there because there's only 14 kids or whatever. So, you know, like it was only 14 kids. So you kind of knew everybody and it was fun. It was a really good uh, elementary school. And then middle, that also played it contained middle school because it went more like kindergarten to eighth grade. And then in high school, I went to the school freshman year. I that's when it was all really awkward. Like your body's going through stuff, you feel awkward. I felt really awkward, you know. Like I didn't have a lot of friends. And that freshman year was really, really hard for me. I, I didn't really like it. And I remember going home, like even crying in my bed, going like, "Why doesn't anybody like me? Why don't I have any friends?" You know. And so then I switched school sophomore year because that school was kind of expensive, and it was it was again as private school, much like this this, I guess, lower rung school, but it was fine. But that was an all boy Catholic high school too. And so I felt more comfortable there. I'd say I, I didn't have a lot of friends there either. I had like four friends and most of the time we'd go see movies, you know, I remember one time, like on New Year's Eve, we'd say, we should go out and party, you know, and we just ended up seeing a movie again, like the midnight showing us a movie. Right. Or whatever. But so it was like a lot of that stuff, you know, so when I got, and then when I got to college, uh, that too was a small school. There's only like 98 kids in the class, you know? And so when I went to the University of Illinois, Banish Japan, which is a big 10 school, when I went there for the tour, it was like huge and massive. And I, uh, I loved it just because I've always gone to small schools. So I just loved that there was so much opportunity. You could do so many things. There were so many people. So I really fell in love with it. And then I stayed at the special dorm called Allen Hall, where it's kind of like a progressive dorm, you know, and they like teach classes there and it's very liberal and stuff like that. And, uh, and I loved that too. I mean, I loved the people there. I loved everybody. And that was the first time when I started going, Oh, I have friends. Like I go down to the kitchen cafeteria and everybody go, bro. I go, Oh my God, I have friends here. And like, it really was. I remember saying to myself, I've made friends. How did I do this? But, it, but it was just a great group of people. And I don't know how I did. It. I think I, I put myself out there more. Like I did improv. I try to meet people more. You go to your ice cream socials or all that other stuff they do like for orientation when you first join college, but it was great. It was the, it was the first time I actually like felt comfortable in my own skin and happy and, and really you know, excited. So college for me was just awesome. You know, I, I love college. You know, that's amazing. So the first year. So that first year you went from this really small school. Did you grow up in, in Illinois? In, in I grew, no, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, which is like in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri, but yeah. Right. So then you, so then you, you get to, to college and you're in this, it's like a living and learning center. Is it like when you say progressive? Yeah, it's like, sort of like a living learning. So they would have like people like Patch Adams comes and they would have like, you know, progressive filmmakers and people like that come and like talk to you and they'd stay with you artists and residents. And so you'd learn from them as you did stuff, you know, yeah. and then they'd also teach classes there. So what was your major? Uh, I was going to be pre-med. And then I got D's in like biology and chemistry. And then at the same time, I started doing improv. So I, go, I want to do something like creative. So then I went into advertising. So major ended up being advertising. So you went from a doctor. Yeah. My parents used to write like, happy birthday, Dr. Brum on all my birthday cards. And really? 
Yeah. And then I got consecutive D's and a, and a bunch of subjects because, you know, your first time you're going away to college, like you're on your own, or at least for me, you know, and I was always a pretty responsible student. Like I was a salutatorian, like in high school and stuff like that. I was always really responsible. When I got to college, I was like, woohoo, I don't have to go to class. You mean I could just skip class? It was it's pretty wonderful, actually. But, D's, I, but like D's, you're you're like D's are not good. These are not good, right? And I, I didn't know. I mean, I ride the ship after that, but my parents go, oh, you know, you were paying a lot of money. You should try to do better. I go, oh, you're right. I didn't think, I didn't put the cost associated with stuff. But then I, I did better after that. And then you have your own internal metrics where you go, like, I want to do good for myself to do good, not just because of a grade. I want right. to be smart at something. So then it's your own, your own kind of like self-drive or whatever, which. Did you work to get those Ds? Like, like, did you know you were getting Ds? Like, at what point did you realize, like, oh, crap, like, I'm getting D. I'm failing. I uh, I just wasn't studying. I remember like I was saying up. I did a twenty four hour. I was, was going to stay up all night to study for this biology exam, and I was kind of half ass in it. And then my friend said, "I'll give you this lucky hat." Who I'm still friends with today. And you'll wear your lucky hat and pass. And I got a D on the thing. And I I just I don't know why I just didn't. I, for some reason, like some people care. I guess when you go to college, I was just trying to find myself and your experience and everything. Like, and so I guess grades went by the way, the wayside, at least for me. But right. I mean, a D is a lucky hat. Because I mean, you didn't get an F, so I mean, that's I mean, it's lucky. D's passing, I think. Yeah, right? and that guy who gave me the lucky hat. He only lives like he lives like five minutes away from me. So he's how's he doing? How's he's his doing life? Good. His life's good. He's doing great. Has two kids. Lucky, yeah. right? He's living yeah. a lucky life. <laughs> no, he's working at MTV for a while, then MTV laid everybody off, and now he's like working at AT and T or something. But for right, years, yeah, it was pretty awesome. wearing his hat. So, yeah. so then the improv troupe. So. And I think this is like such a pivotal point in your life because you were at U of I, you then, how did you discover this improv troupe and how did you get involved? Did you have to audition? Like, tell me how you, tell me how you landed there. Yeah. Well, my friend and I, a guy named Christian Beal, who's a great guy who lives in Austin now. He, uh, he, him and I, we were on the same dorm floor. We said, oh, we should start a, a troupe like this. You know, we should start a comedy troupe and you're going to call ourselves monkey socks or something like that. We made flyers. And as we were making flyers, we just started to see these other flyers for spicy tomato. And we said, oh, we should go check them out one time, which was another improv troupe. And so I went and I saw it was really, really funny. You know, like I, again, I was never really exposed to that. Like even just live theater. Like we, I grew up in the suburbs of St. Louis. We never really saw live theater. We never did any of that stuff. You know, like it was a very, very like middle-class like upbringing. You know, we never just did any of that stuff, arts, artistic stuff. And so, um, you know, I saw it, I was just blown away. Like, it was just so funny and like, just to hear the crowd laugh and everything. And so uh, they had auditions and Christian and I went uh, to do the audition and I thought it was really bad. I, mean, I had this joke about bubble tape, which was horrible, but they liked it. And one time, uh, I was supposed to, you know, yeah, I forget what it was. It was just like, I was, at a, I was at an opera and instead of just with my glasses, I was just eating bubble tape, but I don't know why they thought that was funny. But, uh, and then, um, yeah, then, and then uh, one time I was born and like, uh, I, I fell out of my chair or whatever. This guy pretended he was saving. I was being born from a woman or whatever. And he pulled me out. He says, there we go, doctor. We delivered him. And I was a fully grown adult. And he kind of saved it or whatever. But those were the two audition pieces. And then it sort of worked. Christian and I both got hired along with this guy named Dave Sitton and somebody else, I forget. But And then there's like the maybe eight of us, nine of us. But it was a great group of people, you know. And that really was awesome, you know. That was like my core friends. And we would just, you know, we'd go to parties together. We'd do shows together. We'd just hang out together. And it really made college awesome for me, you know. Did um did like women did they want you? Uh did women no? I was again like that. I've never had any self-confidence in that in, in pretty much any field whatsoever or whatever. So not when it came to dating, of course not. Not no, not really. Well, maybe one person, but that's about it. Yeah. How'd you meet your wife? 
Uh, my wife, we were at a party. We were supposed to go on a blind date because we had mutual friends. And I uh, blew her off. And uh, we, she kept calling to, or she'd call to set up a blind date. And then on the day of the blind date, I just said, I'm not really want to go. I don't want to go. So she goes, okay. And so we just never went. And then like two and a half years later, we saw each other at a party. And, oh, we should go out, you know. And then she came and saw a show. And we just started hanging out together. And then it's kind of went from there, you know. But it was uh, awesome. I'm glad she gave me another chance, I know. Yeah. I mean, you're so, you're just so, you just so are so cool. Like you oh. said, time for, did you meet her in college? No, I met her after college. Like we we're, I think in our thirties in New York, but yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Cause people like to know about dating and you know, you're a funny yeah. guy with a good job. And, you know, like I would think that, you know, people would be swooning over you. Like, you I know, mean, I, I did date people, you know, I, I did date a lot of people. I'm like, I, and then, uh, but yeah, I, I know, but yeah, there was really no swooning. And then again, it has to do with my own like lack of self-confidence probably. Why are you so, un- why do you have so little confidence? I don't know. I don't know. It's like, uh, I don't know. People just have, some people have re- really great confidence, which is a good thing to have. And there's other people that kind of lack the self-confidence. I mean, I can still get it, you know, still like work at the magic sometimes, you know, and I'll have confidence when it comes to certain areas, but you know, like social scenes and stuff like that, yeah. I kind of always go to the background, but. But do you secretly know you're like, do you secretly know, like, is there a part of your brain where you're like, shit, I'm kind of talented. Like, you know, I'm, I'm like, I got uh, something. I don't know. The thing about this industry is like, and like your industry too, there's always so many more talented people. It's like anything, you know, like sports too. You know, there's yeah. talent you like you are. There's always somebody way more talented or whatever. So like, sometimes I, I think, oh, I got this and I'm, I'm really happy. I got this. Like I sold this book. I'm really happy about I sold this book. But then you try it again. It doesn't work. Or you, you write this movie that you're really happy about and you try to sell that. It doesn't work, you know? So like, this industry is good that it keeps knocking you down. Whenever you think you fly, you get, you get yeah. knocked down. But that's yeah. what's great. Sorry to keep rambling here. No, I love but, this because you're like a rejection. You are so good at rejection, bro. Oh, my God. I've, I've had so much rejection. But I would say the thing about this job, which teaches you more than anything, is like life really is the old roller coaster, you know? And you just mm-hmm. got to strap in and enjoy the ride because you will go up. And there's been many times where up, I'm going like, I'm the best ride. I can ride anything. And then immediately you're down at the bottom going, man, I stink. Everything is dying. And you'll go up again. Then you'll go down again. And you just have to get used to the roller coaster. Just know when you're up, you'll go down. And when you're down, you'll go up, you know? Yeah. I want to, I want to, um, I want to learn about all your rejection. Cause I think that that's something that's so charming about you is you just keep getting rejected, but you keep moving forward. It's like, you're just a guy who just like, like, I don't think you stop. Right. Well, I, I do in some things, but it is hard for this, this career, at least writing wise, like in the probably for any career, it's your own self drive, which motivates, you know? So like yeah. at this place, I mean, it's cause you don't really not do it for anybody else. You're not really doing it to get wealthy or anything like that. You're just doing it. Cause like I have these ideas. I want to put them down on paper and, and so hopefully yeah. somebody will buy them or use them, you know? So like, I tried to write this one book. It got rejected. And so then I tried to turn it into a, a TV show and that got rejected by Nickelodeon. And then I tried to, now I'm trying to turn it into a graphic novel. So we'll see if that gets rejected. You just keep trying because you believe in something. You go, I believe in this. And things get in, in this industry, everything gets rejected for so many reasons or whatever. You have to, if you believe in it and you keep pushing it, hopefully something will come about. And if not, you know, I at least try it, you know? Yeah. Like how many, so how many times do you, like, did you get rejected for, um, and so there's the cryptid school. So for those of you who, who don't know, I'm talking to Michael Brum. People call him Brum a lot too. Like mostly it's just Brum, like Brum, right? Um, so Michael Brum and Michael, Mike Brum is a writer on Stephen Colbert. The late show with Stephen Colbert, working with Stephen Colbert for years. And we did some improv together back in the day. 
and he's done a lot of other work as well. And in addition to being a writer, and we're going to get to what a writer does, how do you become a writer and all that, because um, I want to learn more about that. But you also have published books and you've got a a, a book series called The Cryptid Club, correct? Yeah. Graphic yeah. novels, right? Yeah, graphic novel. I mean, that was an old thing I wrote like seven years ago. Like I was... We just decided, like, I'm going to try to write a script, you know, because like late night comedy, you're just writing joke, 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 you know. So I just said, I've never written a script before. I'm going to try to write a script. So it was really the first thing I wrote. And it's kind of inspired by my kids. I go like, you know, I go, well, I'll write something about Bigfoot because I like Bigfoot. I like stuff like that, you know. So I just wrote something down on a piece of paper. And then at the time you have like an agent, I said it to them. They go, nah, we don't want to do kids stuff. So then you just kind of keep it. And like one thing, if you're becoming a writer, keep everything you write. I don't care where you put it in a Dropbox folder or Google Drive or whatever. Just file all that stuff away because you will eventually use it in the future. So keep everything you write if you want to be a writer. So I just kept it. And then like like seven years later, I said, oh, here's something. I had this agent guy go, oh, here's something I wrote. Nobody really wants it, but I'll just give it to you. He goes, oh, that should be a graphic novel. And then so then he sent it to this other uh, editor. And the other guy goes, yeah, I like this. Our publisher goes, our book agent. He goes, I'll try to sell it. And then and then it sold and worked out that way. And then it went from one book to four books. And hopefully there'll be more books of that. But we'll see. So it just kind of worked out that way. But that was a thing that's like seven or eight years in the making, you know? Like yeah. so. And you were excited about it and then it got rejected. Uh well, that one actually didn't get rejected. That one, that was one thing that I made it where it didn't get rejected, where the first thing where I go, oh, hey, that didn't get rejected, you know. But um my wife and I also wrote a book together about Meghan Markle's rescue dog called Guy the Beagle. And I got a cease and desist from Meghan Markle, which is kind of cool. It says, HRH, Her Royal Highness, Meghan Markle's request that you stop and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was just kind of, it's framed on my wall. About the but, dog. About the dog, yeah. But I, I've written many, many scripts that have gotten rejected. Many, 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 many scripts that have gotten rejected. And there's so always that, yeah. When you write that script and you're excited about it and it gets rejected, how do you, how do you write the next one? That's it's hard. It's, it's just like the nature of the biz, you know, but like you, you know, when you finish a script and then you turn it in, there's like that for five days, you're going, I'm on cloud nine because you're imagining like the possibility of everything, you know, people loving it. And you always think, oh, they're going to love this so much. They probably need to see everything like this. And then never really like weeks go by. They never call you. And go, Has anybody read this? Do you yeah. like it? Oh, we think it's okay. Go, All right. But then you just do it because it's inside you and it has to come out or whatever. And you just like, and I really enjoy doing it and like writing characters and like stories or whatever, where it, like your own imagination is a limit. They can go anywhere. They can do anything. They can say anything. Like it really is like you're a, a puppet master just as controlling these characters. And so it's super fun to write stuff like that. And so I just really enjoy doing it. And again, there's always the possibility that it may happen. So like I wrote one script, it takes like a month or a month and a half or two months or three months, you know, and it's really hard to write a movie script and then it doesn't go anywhere. Then you go, all right, we'll I have another ideas and, you know, nobody else is going to do it. I might as well do it, you know? So it's just a side may I have to come out. So I'll try to write it. You spend like a month or two, write it, you know? And then, and then, and then you, you, yeah. And then you pitch it. Then you pitch it or usually to an agent and then your agent will then try to sell it. And again, it's a very, nobody really knows what happens there. Does the agent get his foot in the door? Does he know the people? I mean, who knows what happens? It right. really is a lot of layers of luck in order to get it made. Right. But right. So you're always you're always writing, you're always creating something, and you're doing it just because of the joy of doing it, but you also have to make money. So before you were on Colbert Report in 2005, you were in so you're at you're in Chicago mm -hmm. and you are part you're you're at Improv Olympic. Like, what are some of the jobs you're working? during that time just to make a living. Oh yeah. When I, 
I moved to Chicago because I, uh, after college, I had this, this girl and I were in a play together, Italian American Reconciliation by John Patrick Shanley. She was, I'm going to Europe for three months. I go, I never even thought about that. Maybe I'll go to Europe for three months too. So we went together and I just put it all on credit cards. And it was still the best decision I ever made. Even putting it on credit card and getting that debt, I highly recommend you doing it because like you really have that time in your life to do stuff. And I highly recommend you go to Europe for three months, if not longer. So anyway, uh, we did it and we kind of fell in love around Paris or I don't know if it was love or just lust or whatever, but it was really fun. And then um, we traveled around Europe together for three months. But then afterwards, I moved back to St. Louis and she was still in Chicago. So then I go, I have to get up there. So I worked the Olive Garden one day. I made $65. I only worked one day after a week of training. And then I quit after that because it was horrible. And then I just took my parents' van and I moved to Chicago. And then I started doing improv classes and my friend had to give me $50 because I didn't have any money. And he gave me $50 to start Brian Fazio to start the improv class. And then I needed insurance because back then you didn't have, you can send insurance to your 26. I think it was like 21 or 22. Right. So then I got a job at Blue Cross Blue Shield, which was horrible. And I worked in the file room and this is before everything was digitized. But then people would call and say, I have a claim, you know, I want to know about this. So you go in this super unorganized file room and you just go through these files and you get all these carbon papers. I don't know how anybody found anything or however I've got any medical ailment fixed or whatever. And you just pull it out and get the information there. So I did that. And then my, my friend, Allie Davis said, you know, you should try to work at Jelly Vision. And Jelly Vision was really one of the more creative places to work in Chicago. You know, they made this game, You Don't Know Jack. They were doing Who Wants to Build a Millionaire. It was like really the beginning of sort of the dot-com craze, you know, and like people would go there and not wear shoes and dogs would run around the office. And it was really unlike anything I've ever experienced before. And so I, I, I again, I just went to the library there. I think it was the library of Wrigleyville. And I just filled out this, this packet, this submission packet. And I didn't think I would get it. But uh, I did get it. And so it, it worked out really well, you know, I'm like, and I, and I, and I love that job like crazy. It's the job where I first learned to be like writer and like write funny things and work with really creative, talented people. And it was awesome. So I know Jelly Vision and yeah. uh, I actually was delivered on a stage in high school by Harry Gottlieb hmm. and my brother, uh, Vic Cohn. They were in the variety show together. They were seniors together. And um, this is at Glenbrook South High School. And I was, um, I was like 10 at the time and yeah. they did a delivery scene. It's funny. You mentioned a delivery scene of a baby, but like there was a delivery, a live delivery on the stage as part of this big show. And, and, yeah. and Harry and my brother, you know, were, were writers of this and I was 10 and available. I didn't have any other gigs at the time. So I was, um, delivered live on stage, uh, <laughs> as part of that. And then, um, and I, and I just know of, of, of Harry over the years. So I remember when you don't know, Jack came out and then, um, and, and Amanda Lannert, are you, are you, oh, yeah. were you were she was, I don't know if Amanda was there, but yeah, she was there. you know, we're, we're, I just know of her and have seen just the amazing things that Jelly Vision has done. And, you know, that's awesome, dude. So, yeah, I, I mean, they're, they're really on the forefront of sort of like this whole AI. They can also sort of like, like the digital, like helper or whatever assistant or whatever. They're really trying to go down that well, you know, they're a little bit before their time. And I don't, I don't know if it ever quite caught on the way they wanted it to, but yeah. It's games. They were really working for that. So they were ahead of their time. It didn't quite catch on. And now it's catching on like crazy, but. Oh yeah. You know what I didn't realize is you graduated from college and then you worked at the Olive Garden. Yeah. Like that was your first job out of college. Well, before that it was a car wash. Cause I I went to Europe. I came back and I had no money. And I saw the car wash down the street was paying like, I think it was like $15 an hour, $20 an hour. I go, this is crazy. And the car wash, my God, there was a, a, a kid who was, and, he, and it was a rough place. He was sort of like, he had a sort of a disability. So his arm was cramped up like his hand like this, I guess his chest like this. And they would call him the squirrel, the other 
car wash, people would call him a squirrel because the hammer like this. And they would make him do the inside of the windows, which was the worst thing you do. And there was another guy who would never wear a shirt because he was doing so much cocaine. He would lose his shirt by the time he left his house to the time he got to work. <laughs> his shirt would fall off somewhere, but he was always high on cocaine. So it was a, it was kind of a rough place, but, but that's where I first worked. And then after that, I went to the Olive Garden. Yeah. Right. After college. And were your parents, yeah. your relationship with your parents, I mean, you go, you graduate from college, you don't have any money, right? Like you, yeah. you go to Europe, you you go to Europe on credit cards. I mean, these, this yeah. is a terrible, everything about this is a terrible idea. It you're was terrible. A, you're yeah. supposed to be a doctor. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like your, your life has taken a serious turn. So yeah. what are your, and, and you've got this Catholic school background. So like, what are you, what are your parents saying about your, your life, Mike? My parents, like I was the first one in my family to go to college, you know? So I don't, I don't think they really, knew what to expect, you know, after somebody goes to college, because it was new to them too, because my family, nobody else went to college. So they were like, oh, what happens now? You know, like, I guess he gets a job somewhere, you know, my dad was saying, you can go work for the telephone company. The telephone company is a good place to work, you know, but so they didn't really know what to expect. And they were pretty good. They just said, okay, you got to make money and you got to find your way, you know? And so like, you know, you just kind of have to do it. So I, I did Blue Cross Blue Shield in Chicago because I just needed insurance, you know? That was a good I, job. Like that's a call. You needed a college degree for that job. Uh, yeah, I think you needed a college degree, even though the stuff you did, you probably didn't need a college degree for, but it was fine. You know, there's a lot of good people there and okay. stuff like that. So again, you just do what you have to do to survive, you know, and that's so, and, and speaking of college, I know you do a lot of college for me, that was the hardest time in my life. Like when you graduate college, because your whole life, you have the next thing ahead of you, you know, you have, you know, freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, you're always going to the next thing. So there's always a path in front of you to take. And when you get out of college, it's like, Jesus, what do I do now? You know, like, you'll end up working some crappy job and you go, is this it? Is this what I'm working? This is the job I do, you know? And like, you don't really know like where to go because the path isn't there and you have to kind of make your own path. So that's kind of a, a scary thing, but also a super exciting thing and super creative and rewarding thing. Cause like you can go anywhere. You can do anything. You can, you know. Yeah. yeah like you just went with it. Possibility. Yeah. It's great, man. I just love how you just, you just went with it. And I think those twists and turns when you're in it, they're just so damn scary. I mean, they're just, it's scary. They are scary. I know. Yeah. You don't know. And then, um, and then like one thing leads to another. Exactly. And, yeah. And then you get to like, you get to where you are right now, which, which I'm sure is exciting and, and also scary at times, you know, like even today we're talking during, during the writers guild strike, you know, just to timestamp this. And, um, you know, I know that there are, I know that from what I read, uh, you know, Stephen Colbert is, is helping the staff during this time. And, and um, so in terms of income and like, you know, the uncertainty of a job at like being a comedy writer and working in late night and, and that, I mean, do you feel like you have job security? Do you ever feel safe? Uh, you know, it's weird. Cause like TV, you think it'd be the le- least job security, but actually it's been really, really good. And a lot of that's due to Colbert because Colbert is like a really good guy, you know, super talented, but like, I mean, late night, you can work like a, a normal, like you get paid 52 weeks a year, you know, and you get like 11 weeks or 12 weeks of vacation a year, you know, and it, it's really good. It's in late night is actually really good job security. Like episodic television is a little bit harder because like, this is one of the things the strike is about, but as we went from broadcast to streaming, like, yeah. you know, it used to be episode order was like 22, but now episode order is like 10 or eight or six. So like writer rooms are smaller. There's like less security. And so you're always jumping from job to job, like after 13 weeks or like 26 weeks, you know? So it's a little bit harder now, which is what the strike is about, you know? Yeah. So, but it actually in late night though, late night is actually pretty secure. And like, we have a union, which is the writer's guild. And like, you get a pension, you get health, great health insurance. You get like yeah. all these paid vacation days. The union has been really awesome, you know? I'm a big 
big union guy, but yeah. Yeah. So you got a sweet job. You get, I mean, you really landed in a great place, but just to, to go back. So you were at jelly vision, uh, then mm-hmm. you decided, um, you know, I want to go to graduate school. Like, why did you decide to do, Oh, you know, I, oh. I keep forgetting to ask you, Brom. Um, did you, did you have student loans when you were in college? You I did. I had student loans. Yeah. So I, I had student loans and then I consolidated them. And then, you know, I, I got a low rate and then I just paid them off over time. And then I took off more loans when I went to grad school. And then I just paid those off in like five years. To me, I didn't have like, I mean, I, I had like probably 40, maybe $50,000 in loans. When I did like grad school, I probably like another $50,000 in loans. So like all together, like a hundred, like, so it wasn't for me. I just paid it off and just became a part of my thing, you know, and then I eventually paid it off. Which was pretty awesome when you eventually paid, but that was just like five years ago, you know, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I didn't mind loans that much actually like, you know, so you, it, I didn't. Yeah. You were I brought it, enough to pay it off though. Yeah. And so I consolidated them, them all in one, and then I was able to pay them off like a low rate. My brother, though, like he tried to get like a, a PhD and he has like $250,000 of loans. And it's just like crushing him, you know, like, and so like, so I would, my advice would be not to take out that many loans if you can afford it. But like, he's like being crushed and he like just never found his feet. And like a lot of high college kids, you know, like yeah. after they get out of college, like he just never found his feet. And so like, he's just being crushed by these loans all the time. There's only so many times you can put them off and stuff like that. So like, yeah, he's had a harder time. They say the general rule is you don't want to take out more than what you would earn your first year out of college. Like oh, that's a good advice. So like if you graduated with like 40 grand in loans, you know, that's like manageable because if you have a job that's paying you fifty thousand dollars, forty thousand dollars, whatever you 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 can budget that and then you yeah. pay that down and then you went to grad school. So just you know, NYU is a place like it's not an easy place to get into. And somehow you end up landing on top. Like that's the thing about you, man. Like you just keep doing your thing. And like great things happen. Like, how did you decide to go to grad school? How do you apply to you went to NYU, right? Yeah, NYU. Well, I was at Jelly Vision and Jelly Vision lost a contract with like Disney because they were gonna do some big Disney game and they lost it. And so they laid off like there's 50 people working there. I think they laid off like 45 people. And I was one of the people and I was really scared. So, but I always wanted to do, I always want to go to New York, you know, like New York is this thing on TV. I've always wanted to do yeah. it. And so and I've always wanted to write for comedy too. Like Conan was big then and I wanted to write for Conan, but I was too afraid to like just go there and try it, you know? So I needed like the safety of grad school in order to do it. So I just applied to grad school and it sort of worked out in between there in Chicago. I worked as like, this is an episode of Seinfeld where you work as like a fake medical patient, you know, and you pretend like you have like a stomach ulcer or something and the patients, the doctors come in and like med students come in. And yeah. do, so I did that for a little bit. And um, that's what kind of held me over until I got to NYU. But then NYU was great. I came right before 2000, right before I came in August of 2001 the 9-11 was, uh, you know, less than a month later. And I lived like sort of like maybe a few blocks away from like the, the Twin Towers or whatever. But yeah. Wow. That's so you were. What was your program at NYU? It was like media ecology. It's like media and politics and why they mix and why they shouldn't mix, you know, which has like sort of what I'm doing now, you know. Like yeah. Media, but Did yeah. you learn anything like you you learned enough? I did learn enough. And then I, I also went abroad to study in like Japan and China just for like a month or whatever. But that was yeah. really great too. You know, like any of these experiences you have that kind of broaden your world or whatever. Yeah. Like, so that was really fantastic. Yeah. That's cool. And then this sets you up then to you're working in advertising and then and Allison oh. Silverman, who you met from, because you're right, you graduated from NYU and then were you yeah. working in advertising? Well, actually, when I got done with NYU, it was... uh I, I couldn't find a job at all. So I worked in the file room at Louis Vuitton. It was a, a horrific, horrific experience. And I did that for almost a year and a half, you know, and I, and I was making like 
was like $13 an hour or whatever. And I had peanut butter. I kept a loaf of bread in my drawer and a loaf of peanut butter and jelly. And every day I would make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you know. And there was all these exotic people around, like very French, very dressed <laughs> to the nines, you know. And there was this girl that I really enamored with. And then I, 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 you know, after I did my peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I went to go ask her out. And then she said, nope. I go, yeah, I don't blame you. I, I don't blame you. Well, you yeah, uh, a picnic. You had ready-made picnic for her. I know. But yeah, she she did. She wanted nothing to do with it. But she was also very... You know, she was very much of the Louis Vuitton world, you know, that I was not a part of. You know, I just worked in the file room. But again, good people there and really nice people. And Why so, do you like file room so much? I th- I mean, it's. I don't so know. I would just spend so much time in the file room just like filing stuff, you know, but um, so I got on first, but yeah. Right. But so then from there, yeah. You're attracted yeah. to file rooms. I know. Well, then from there, I, I, I put together a portfolio, like an advertising campaign, like just like some fake ads I made, you know, which was kind of fun. And then I uh, applied and this guy called me in. And then I worked on this thing for IBM and I quit the second day because I feel like, ah, uh, this isn't me. I can't handle it. What am I going to do? Write about IBM. I don't know what to write about IBM. I can't do this, you know? And so I quit. And this guy, he, and again, it's all, life is all about get, people giving you chances, you know? And he said, why don't you come back and try it again? I want you to try it again. I think it'll be good. And I, I went back and, and to be honest, I loved it. Like it was great. And I, and I really found confidence being a writer there and it was really fun. And we made commercials and just the act of pitching, you know, the, what I use now in like the TV world, like advertising is so similar. You know, you're you're marketing soap or a credit card and you have to come up with this campaign and you pitch it to this room of people and usually use a little razzmatazz, you know, and they they buy off of it and then you go make it. And it's really fun, you know. So like I was really lucky that guy gave me a second chance, you know, like. Are you still in touch with him? Yeah, he used to live. I used when I lived in the city on 92nd Street, he lived like right on 93rd Street. So we'd see each other all the time. But yeah, that's cool. And now man. he's like, he just retired, but he writes. I think he writes about mysticism and stuff like that. He's a pretty cool dude. Pretty good guy. Yeah. To have somebody do that and to pull you back in and be like, hey, you know, you can do this. Like those yeah. are the people that change your life, you know? That is the people that change your life, you know? Yeah. I mean, like you, but you keep, you keep finding those people. And, and I just, you know, I'm always trying to get something bigger from a conversation like this of like, you know, it's those people who you play soccer with or the people who you're on an exactly with. And it's like, it's, it's like, it's not, it's not someone you met in biology class, right? Yeah. It's, it's just like random, you know, random people that will change the course of your life, you know? I'm like, right. And then you stay in touch with them and they like, like you and they're interested in you. Yeah. You just, cause you, you just have good energy, man. Like you, you do, oh, you do. And I, it's like, and even when we couldn't connect to do this, cause I think like it took you a while to get back to me. And, but the thing about me is like, you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. But it's like, dude, I am so used to being crapped on. Like, oh, really? I get rejected by everyone, right? And I just assume people are busy or they don't like me. So, um, yeah. you know, and I just thought you were busy. Um, well, why do you? What makes you keep driving forward? Keep reaching out? What makes you? I mean, it's, it's, I got like systems. I got uh, so. Um, all right, are we good on time? Because I want to. I want to yeah, get I'm to fine. your. Okay, cool, yeah. dude. I got to get to like. I want to get to like what you actually do. For your job now. Right, sure. Um, so I think that's interesting. But for me, so you know, like I kind of went head first into into this whole rejection thing, almost like reporting on rejection, like giving myself a role, like as an advice columnist. Cause when I was in college, I started writing an advice column, which ins- which is so interesting. I-, I have this with me. I don't know if you, you could see that. Oh, so, yeah, tonight show Jay Leno. Yeah. It says tonight show Jay Leno. And I got this when I was an intern. Oh, at really? the tonight show. Yeah, I was an intern at Leno. Oh, that's awesome. And um I only got that internship because I ended up staying longer in college because I changed my major junior year and the summer of my bonus senior year. Cause I had like another semester. So I got a bonus summer and that's yeah. where I applied for an internship and I wrote in it. And it was at the tonight show where I met a writer who wrote advice at the university of Connecticut. Oh, and really? It was a really cool idea. Yeah. The guy was really nice. Um, that's awesome. 
he was a good dude. One of the writers was just such, oh, he was so, he was so mean. Um, I don't know if you're mean to the interns. No, I try to be really nice to the, I know, I know, <laughs> mean. I know, I know, it's just weird. You always, some of the, do you have writers who are a little mean to the interns? Uh, not really. Well, I don't think so. I, the, I mean, it really is from the top down or whatever. And like, it really is like super kind, really nice, good people, you yeah. know, like, it's, yeah. it's really unfortunate. Lena was so nice and like everybody was, everybody was very kind. Um, the interns were sometimes competitive mm. um, because there were certain jobs that were better jobs. But um, one time I was loading the refrigerator with Snapple and, and, you know, you'd make J popcorn and there was bagels and cream cheese. And I was in there and the writers would come in and I, and I, and I tried to get to know them. And um, this speaks to also the rejection piece. Cause my role is I'm an intern and as an yeah. intern, I want to get to know the people here so I can learn because maybe I want to do this as a job one day. Yeah. So um, one of the guys came in and I said, you know, Hey man, I was just curious. Like, how do you have to be a writer on the tonight show? And he turned to me and he goes, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, I will never like you. <laughs> and then, and then he walked out. And was I he trying to be funny? I don't, I don't know if he was doing a bit. Nah, like the dude was like, I remember his name. I'm not going to say his name. Cause yeah. it was like, it wasn't funny. It was so hurtful. Yeah, and I was, was so scared. Like, am I a kiss ass? Did I screw up? Like, what's the fine line? But, you know, I would, I was just, I always, I just always kept going. I just avoided him because he's yeah. just a miserable dude. I've learned that when you meet miserable people, like there are some people in life who are miserable, right? Like if I walk into a room and I'm doing a show and I ask people how they are on a scale of one to 10, I'm going to have a lot of people who are ones, right? And they were ones before I got there. Like they're just yeah. miserable. Like they're just having a bad day or they're just miserable human beings. Yeah. So I like to know who's miserable before I meet them. Yeah. So I don't have to think I'm in like, I'm the response. I'm responsible for their misery. Yeah. So, um, right. It helps. But these are all tools that I use to help myself to arm armor myself so that I can deal with rejection. But anyway, that, that tonight show internship, that writer wrote advice, another writer. And I went back and I started writing my advice column and the internship was cool. But it also made me feel like I, I just didn't want to live live in LA and I didn't want to have to go through the grind of doing that. Yeah. Um, I started writing my advice column. And as an advice columnist and someone who's kind of socially a little awkward, it gave me a role because yeah. I could ask people any questions and it's okay. Like one of my favorite things I learned as a journalist, and this is like you gotta give yourself a role. Like giving yourself roles are are so are so important. And um, I did a, a expose my senior year in my uh, magazine writing class. And I did it on the guy that ran Night Moves, the strip club in Bloomington. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, who is who would be an interesting person to talk to? I agree. That's a pretty interesting person right. to talk it's to. It's like a small town, conservative yeah. community, college community. And they opened Night Moves, which had like an amazing buffet, supposedly. Um, that's how they lured people in with their buffet. So uh, I, I made an appointment with the guy and um, he was running late. So I got there and I was sitting in the strip club and um, it was like during the day and some strippers came up to me and I had a notebook and, <laughs> and, and they were like, Hey, how you doing? You know, would you like a dance? And I'm, and I'm like, I'm like, no, thank you. I'm just, I'm just um, taking notes. Like, what am I taking notes on? It was like, it was like, but I, but I was able to be in this place because I was doing this report and it was, it was a little awkward, but you know, it was, it was this, I had a notepad so I could be anywhere. So then he brought me upstairs and, um, 
the upstairs was like this really like well-lit room. There was like a church calendar on the wall. There was like another biblical saying, like this was the most righteous man. Huh. And, um, and all he wanted to be was a great grandpa and mm-hmm. to, you know, provide opportunities for people. And it was like the weirdest, it was wild, dude. Juxtaposition. Yeah, that is. Oh, it was crazy. Cause he was like this really, he seemed like a soulful man who was, who had a business of like, yeah. this, this was the business of night moves. So anyway, <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> yeah. So how did you go from like, you had this idea where you wanted to be a columnist. I, I don't want to get into, but how did you then like sell yourself to a paper and stuff like that? How did that become a thing? Like an yeah. actual job? So that's the grind, dude. Like that's the rejection. There's so much rejection because I started writing this advice column and I was like, okay, I want to do this for a career. I want to be an advice columnist. My parents were like, all right, you know, if anyone can do it, you can do it. And it's a weird job to be, but I'm like, young people don't read newspapers. So maybe I could be the young voice. Like they're going to read help me Harlan because I'm kind of a smart ass and, you know, people liked it. It became kind of like, it was almost like a, it really grew in popularity in, in, at Indiana university. Like people really, they read help me Harlan. It was crazy, man. So so, um, and also it made me feel like good about myself because I have very little confidence and yeah. like the fact that people were reading me in this paper. So I wanted to do this and, um, I started to self syndicate it and I would visit newspaper editors all around the Midwest. And that's pretty I impressive. To, I would try to sell the column for, you know, anywhere from five to $15 a week. And, um, I reached out to syndicates. They all rejected me. And over the years, um, and, and here's the other thing, dude, like I pick shit that's like almost impossible because there's no expectations. Cause like the expectation is I'm going to fail. Right. Like I I think also I didn't go into comedy because if I go into comedy, people are expected to laugh. Yeah. But if I make them laugh and I'm a journalist, then I'm really funny. Like the bar is super low. Right. (laughs) So it's like, I I can handle the rejection, but like I set the field, like, and I create, and I set the rules. So yeah, that yeah. was how I was like able to then do this. Cause if I could succeed doing it, it would be like insane Yeah. Um, because no, very few people do. So the rejection yeah. was built in, which made it okay. Yeah. And that, and that was like, you know, people, one dude, I, I drove four hours to, to talk to a paper. It was in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And um, the dude didn't show up cause his toilet was fl- like stuck. Yeah. He had a bad toilet issue. So he didn't show up to our meeting, but anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to, we're cre- when you're creative, you get rejected again and yeah. again and again. And I got, and then because people were sharing, eventually my column was in the New York Daily News. Yeah. Um, it was a crazy thing. Like they wrote a, something about me in a journalist trade magazine called Editor and Publisher. And an editor from the New York Daily News saw it and they called me. I remember the call because I was working at my dad's insurance agency three days a week and writing. I got this voicemail and it's like this editor from the New York Daily News. I'm like, what? And he's like, we saw your article and saw the profile and we think you might be a good fit for the Daily News. So anyway, I started writing my advice column for Daily News when I was like 23 and with Ann Landers on top and me on the bottom. And so, but it was like, my whole life has been about rejection, 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 success, rejection, 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 success with women, with, with jobs with yeah. it's like that has been the world and i recognize the truth and this is something i'll send you a book because uh and, and i i i'm excited to share this I, I get nervous talking about me because dude like i just want to learn about you but the universal rejection truth 
is the most powerful truth of the universe. And it's, it's, it's a truth that says not everyone and everything will always respond to me the way I always want. That is the universal rejection truth. You write jokes and not all your jokes are going to make it to the show, right? Like, or if you write bits and I want to learn, you write bits, you write jokes, just want to get to that. But like, you understand that and you like rejection has been so built into us because we were beat up for so many years. Yeah. And then we see good things eventually happen. Yeah. You know, like we get beat up, beat up, beat up. Oh, something good happens. Beat up, beat up. Because we've accepted the universal rejection truth, this law of the universe that says not everyone and everything's going to always respond to me the way I always want. Yeah. And and by understanding this law of the universe, we really can be present because we don't have to take everything so personally. Yeah. And and kids, 13-year-olds, 10-year-olds, see, when they get rejected, they think it's about them or someone else. Yeah. But we don't teach people about the universal rejection truth. We don't yeah. introduce that. So when we don't get the outcome we desire, it's either you or me, that's the problem. But the the seed of what helped me to persevere was knowing there was this universal rejection truth. And it wasn't about me. That's definitely good to know. And I I tell it to my kids too. I always say like, don't be afraid to fail. Failing is awesome. You got to fail. And even Colbert will say, you got to learn to love the bomb. You know, you got to go out there and fail big because you just got to learn to, failing is part of life and you've got to fail because that leads to other things. Like the thing that's really impressive about you, and it's the same way when you write scripts or whatever, it's like, you don't know where to begin. Like you didn't know where to begin in your career. You just knew you had this idea of what you want to do. And, and when I wrote a movie, I, I didn't know how to write a movie. You just got to start. And when you just start yeah. something, just start doing it. And it'll slowly, it will slowly it'll take a long time. It'll start slowly coming together and you'll learn more and you'll meet other people who do similar things. And then you'll start that way, but you just got to start and just got to try, you know? That's the thing, man, starting. People say like, yeah. what's your advice for writing? And I'm like, just write. Yeah, just, just write. And just I love start it. Even a paragraph. I know, like, and just try it. I know. And then eventually talk to other people and keep liking it and do it. And something will happen, you know, but you just got to keep going and just say, you know, just try stuff. Yeah. You know? And that's the part where, like, you got to do it around other people. And that's one of the things I'm really excited about with this podcast is I get to, like, reintroduce myself to, to the world. Like, we probably wouldn't talk if I wasn't doing this because, like, you know, I don't just say, like, hey, Brom, let's just shoot the shit. Yeah, I don't know. See, fun. Yeah. Because it's just not my personality. But yeah. now that I have a role and I could talk to you, like it's, it, I'm so excited because being around people is so important. You know, it's yeah. like Alison Silverman, some of the other people from your improv groups, I'm sure other, uh, some of the other writers, I want to, I want to pivot to, so you're, you're on Colbert report, that thing blows up mm-hmm. and, and, and is amazing. And then, um, you know what that reminded me of? I know, um, you know, Stephen Colbert talks about how his his parents, he, you know, he's mentioned this before. How his parents died in a in a plane crash. Or his dad, his, yeah, his mom. His dad, his, oh, his dad. Yeah. I'm sorry, not his parents. His mom. His two brothers. His, yeah, his yeah. two brothers and his and his and his and his dad, yeah. which um, you know, he's he's talked candidly about. And when I hear that, it's the which is like such a horrible tragedy, and and that's this universal rejection truth. It's a different form of it because nobody wants those things to happen. And when the universe serves up these things that are so horrible and tragic that we don't want, we have a choice to either fight it or face it. And accepting yeah. it doesn't mean being okay with it. Accepting means acknowledging that this is the world I live in. Yeah. And if I want to continue to move forward, I need to embrace whatever it is that I'm feeling and going through with an understanding that something will happen after this. Yeah, you know, Something will happen. And that's like hope. And it's just, it just reminded me because it's like, you know, he's just such a, so much of his character is just you keep moving forward. Yeah. Keep moving he, forward. He talks about too, like how he was 
I think this was before the Daily Show, or maybe when he got the Daily Show, or maybe Strangers That Ended, or maybe it was before Strangers with Candy. But he always talks about like he had a kid on the way, or he had a child, and he had no money, and he he was like really he always talks about I was really freaking out. I was having a, a nervous breakdown. I had a kid, and I had no money. We were living in you know wherever, and I and and I was really panicking. And things worked out, you know. But just to say like you know, when people do work out and they are success, like there is, there's a hard road of failure, um, failure, failure, you know, that- it is, it is, it is scary and it's hard, but it's the, it's the people I think it's when we surround ourselves with those people and it's, you know, and you sometimes have to get a job in a filing room. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not like you just sit there and keep sending scripts and, and go hungry. It's like, I gotta, I gotta make money yeah, while yeah. I keep doing this. Yeah. And that's, that's another thing. People, people, at least in my industry and I'm sure other industries too, like people, they always like, oh, I have to go out to LA and I can start writing this stuff, or I have to, you know, start doing this. But the crooked path is also awesome too. You know, you'll meet a lot of great people, and everything you do on the crooked path will be useful later on or whatever. So, like, you just got to survive and keep swimming, you know. So take the crooked path, and it may not be what you want to do, but it may lead somewhere else down the line, you know. So yeah, yeah, and I, and that crooked path you can't see, right? You can't see what's next. Yeah, yeah you can't see what next. You're just gonna go. All right, I just got to keep moving forward. I just got to do this. Like we always at work, we always talk about baseball, like it, like pitching jokes like baseball. You know, even the best baseball players really hit the ball all the time. But yeah. the thing is, you just have to keep getting back, get it back up to bat. So you fail, you go dust yourself off, go all right, let's do it again. You just keep getting yeah. up at bat, and just keep trying. You know, no matter how many times you fail, you know, but you got to yeah. keep standing up and going to bat. But yeah, right. It's like it's built. It's built in. It's built into to your to your everyday life, mm-hmm. and there's the expectation that you know, Brom, when you when you put together your jokes that a lot of these are going to miss but you you you're allowed to the rules are you can miss yeah and i think yeah and like and then you realize like everybody misses and everybody has the same thing the same faults you know but yeah so help those who want to do what you do like i want to just understand like what is a typical day for you can you just give us like a, a brief summary of just what it's like on a normal day working on the late show? Sure. So like my roles change a little bit, but I'll give you like the rule, like the traditional writer, you know, like it's, um, so usually you have a meeting at nine o'clock with like just the, the other writers, you know, so there's like 14 of you in a room, you know, with the head writers and everybody just kind of throws out their ideas. It's pretty casual. Like, Oh, I saw this in the news. Here's a joke on it. I saw this in the news. Here's a joke on it. And then usually at nine 30, you have a bigger meeting. That's with more of the production people. That's also with Colbert's in there. You know, you have your, your co-EPs in there and stuff like that. And you kind of do the same thing that you kind of throw out the jokes, you know, and Gobert is really good about taking an idea and running with it. You know, like it's that improv yes and thing or whatever. So when you hear mm-hmm. an idea, you kind of yes and. And so you get more jokes or whatever. So like, here's your idea. You start adding jokes to it, you know. And then after that, around 1030, you kind of go off in pairs. Like some shows like Fallon, I think they just write by themselves. But our show and even the Colbert Report, we've always written in pairs, which I like a lot of because you can always bounce ideas off somebody. And sometimes when you're not feeling it, that other person kind of could drive the train a little bit, you know. So I usually really, really enjoy writing in pairs. And so you then you go and you write a script, you sit at a computer, usually you procrastinate a little bit, you eat coffee, eat cereal, yeah. you try to procrastinate, and you go, okay, let's do this. And then you sit down and again, you don't really know where you're going, just kind of hello, you just start writing words on a page and then hopefully it comes into something, you know, and you, you get kind of good like line joke, line joke, you kind of get used to where the joke pattern is, stuff like that. And then you turn that in around 1130 or noon. And then we have a read down where you you go in an office, you know, with like uh, Tom Purcell, who's like the showrunner. And we kind of like pitch out the jokes again. And you kind of like, he reads the jokes out loud, you know, to kind of get the reaction. And everybody kind of laughs at their own jokes because you want to, you want to get yourself to get on there. So you got to go, ah, ha, ha, that joke I just read is hilarious, you know. But sometimes they can see through that, you know, and they go, okay, this works, this doesn't work, you know. 
So then that's pretty much it. And then at three o'clock, we have a re we have a rehearsal. So then everybody files downstairs. So we're on the top floor and you file downstairs where the studio is in the Ed Sullivan Theater. And then we kind of have like a, a live dress rehearsal. Colbert's dress, he's mic'd or whatever. We kind of run through the bits and you kind of see what, what plays, what doesn't play, what, you know. And so then you kind of cross stuff off, add stuff. And then there's a rewrite after that from so from like, you know, like four to five thirty, you rewrite, rewrite. Colbert's in there and he's he's really good about rewriting and like tailoring stuff to his voice, you know. And then we go up at 5:30. And so 5:30 just kind of wait in the wings. And no matter how many times I've done it, it never gets old. Just seeing the crowd there and the cameras there and the lights there and the bands there. It's really a, an incredible thing. And I and every time I see it, no matter how many times I do it, I love it so much, you know. And um so yeah, they do that and then you do that and then the show's over and sometimes there's a post-mortem where you go, this worked, this didn't work, but anyway, good show everybody and then you all go home, that's it, but yeah. And then what time do you get home? Well, if you don't go to the post-mortem, I mean, you, could, I mean, you can kind of leave after the monologue, so usually around six you can leave. So it's like kind of like 9.30, 9 to 6, 9.30 to 6, 9 to 5.30, you know. And now after COVID, we all, like hours are kind of loosey-goosey, you know, so you kind of make your own hours. But it's actually really good hours, you know, and like for a late night show, it's great hours, you know, it's it's great. I've yeah. been really do you um do you ever get nervous uh you know when it comes to pitching are you do you do oh. jokes or do you also do bits? Uh, I do both jokes and bits and and I've been on stage a bunch too and I and I get really nervous like that one time I was in a gorilla suit behind the stage and I thought I was going to pass out because I was hyperventilating so much because I was so nervous you know but I, I didn't pass out like oh they're gonna find this gorilla they're gonna open the curtain they pass out in this cage or whatever I forgot what the, even the bit was but but um. But, uh, but yeah, I get nervous all the time. And even pitching out jokes, I still get nervous. You know, you'll have periods of confidence and the periods where you go, oh, I don't know if I can do this, you know. And when I first started, like, the show, the Colbert Report just started and I was a, a new guy. And those people had been writing for like two weeks together. And I threw out ideas and there was nothing. There was silence. And I, and I felt really miserable. I'd go home like, oh, my God, this is horrible. I'm going to get fired, you know. But I kept working because it's your own internal thing, you know, your own self-drive or whatever. And so eventually you learn, like, what you give you? Oh, you should also give yourself an opportunity to, like, ramp up, you know. And I think a lot of people don't do that. You know, they they start a job. They expect to be perfect at something, including sports and other things else. Everybody expects to start stuff and be perfect at it and be this shining star. But there's a huge ramp up period. And I asked this guy, Drysdale, who was a longtime writer. He worked on The Daily Show, a bunch of other shows. He goes, you go, how long did it take you to ramp up? He goes, about two years. And I go, yeah, that's about right. It takes about two years, at least six months before you start to feel comfortable. And then about two years where you feel like, okay, I got this. But it, it does take that long, you know. When you got there, uh, how did you know who were the people you could trust and turn to? Because it, it can be competitive. And you know, I, the new it, was, it was a little bit. And and the show's gotten definitely nicer. When we first started, everybody was trying to fight into their feet, you know, the Colbert report, everybody was like a jockeying for position, you know, cause it just started. And so that was a little rough. Like it was like, you throw out jokes. It was just like dead silence. Now everybody's super supportive. You throw out jokes. Everybody's so loud. You know, we're, we're a much more supportive group. But when the, the, the old show started, the Colbert report, at first it was a little bit, people were just kind of like, what's my space here? And I'm going to fight for my position here, you know, and that eventually went away. But that, when the show first started, they had a little of that, you know? So I, don't know. It was my then that oh then I know this other guy named Frank started who's a good friend of mine, Frank uh Lesser. And so I was a new guy, and then he came, he was a new guy after me. And so we shared an office. And so we were kind of simpatico. We could like bounce ideas and say, Hey, did you have this experience? Yeah, I had this experience. I feel bad. You feel bad too. So it was nice to have somebody else to bounce stuff off. And so that made me feel a lot better and a lot more comfortable, you know. Yeah. Well, being creative, I think it's really hard in knowing like, you know, if you're gonna survive or you know, could you get fired? Were you ever like worried you were gonna get fired? Uh, yeah, there's a few, I mean, I, a few times I'm like, I started this, uh, at the new show, we kind of do these cold opens, you know, and I, and I kind of like done that a bunch of those, you know, and like, 
there's a bunch of times like, oh man, we're being fired for sure. Cause like it did not go well at first. Like we were just trying to find our feet and we used to do a lot of stuff. Like now we take like existing footage, just kind of manipulate it. But the, at the old time, I mean, when we first started, we would just like shoot everything every single day. So like in the span of like three hours, you had to cast, shoot, edit, and uh, you get actors. And, and like, it was impossible. And we failed like so often. So I always thought I'd be fired from that. So, but, 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 but you know, I, I wasn't fired luckily. So yeah. if somebody wanted to be a comedy writer today, like if you were 18, right. Mm-hmm. And, and there's YouTube and there's all these creators, there's TikTok, there's Instagram. There's so many ways to write and be seen or write yeah. and to offer something of value. Like, yeah. What do you, what do you think your choices would be? Like, what would you advise an 18 year old who loves to make people laugh and wants to be in this business? Like, what should they do? Yeah. I think we just said, like, just start making stuff. Like, yeah, I know it's kind of like everybody says that, but there is so many avenues now, like YouTube and TikTok and everything and Twitter. And I know a lot of people that's got jobs on Twitter, just from my friend, Dan Guterman, who's super talented also, but he, he got a job on the show community just from his tweets or whatever, you know, people write his tweets, go, like, oh, this guy's really funny. And like, you do the same thing on TikTok, you do the same thing on YouTube, you do the, I mean, Instagram, you make probably funny stuff to us. I mean, there's so many avenues now that they're not used to be, you know, they used to be the gatekeepers at all the studios, but now there's like so many avenues that people could do stuff. So I you just start, start making something. And then like also learning those programs, like, you know, all those Adobe products are super fun to learn. And once you know those, you can do so many other things, like just start experimenting with stuff and making stuff, you know, and, like you shoot stuff with an iPhone pretty easily and you can edit stuff pretty easily. There's so many opportunities now for people to make stuff, you know? Yeah. Is it, and to be an intern, you know, is it hard to be an intern? Do you know anything about interns? Oh uh, yeah. We have a lot of interns on the show. Like we have this spring, fall and summer internships. And so it is. I mean, I think it's really good to be an intern because you get there, you get to see what the life is like. Is to see if something you want to do? Like sometimes you're doing some mundane task, like you know, restocking the fridge or whatever. But like you're just around it, and you get to like. And and in this industry, it's like it's just meeting people because like you'll meet those people who will go off to do other things, and then you'll contact them and say, "Hey, are they looking for anybody?" And they go, "Sure. Why don't you apply? Or why don't you sign up?" And I heard they're hiring. Are you interested? Why don't you do it? You know. So it's just like making connections, and then you know those people fan out, and then you'll eventually stay in touch with them and stuff like that. So I think the internships are good for that. Yeah. And then if somebody is interested in writing or in publishing, because you also have your graphic novels and you are, you know, you're, you're doing a lot of different things. Um, you know, would it be weird if like someone reached out to you and is like, Hey, no, anybody can always reach out to me. I mean, you could put my email or whatever, but yeah, for sure. Anytime, like it's a, it's a hard business, but anybody wants advice. I mean, not, I don't know how good of an advice person I am, but like, if I can tell you anything, I can know, you know, or give you any tips if I know any, but yeah. Well, it's like, you know, you're very humble. I mean, that's the thing about you. You just, you just do your thing. And it's like, you're, uh, you're not looking for a lot of attention. Oh yeah. Well, like you too, you know, there's always like, it's always a mixed bag of self-doubt and self, you know, and like failing and stuff, but you just keep marching forward, you know, and just keep yeah. trying your best, you know, but. I love it. Um, this has been so fun and you're so interesting. And uh, I just love the the different twists and turns. If you could go back in time and give. 18 year old Brum senior in high school graduating. And you could give you some words of wisdom about like what's coming. What would you tell you to help make the path a little easier? Oh, I would probably just say like, have confidence in yourself. Like nobody has confidence and I don't really have confidence, but like have confidence in yourself. You're, you're a good kid. You'll be fine. You know? And then also like have fun too. Cause it really is like, you know, it sounds dorky, but like life is a journey or whatever, but like, it's, but it is, it's a fun, awesome ride, you know? And like, you just like strap into the roller coaster and enjoy the ride, enjoy the ups and downs and just have fun and experience it all, you know, like it's, it's a pretty wonderful, you know, journey or whatever. So 
Yeah. I just That's, say have fun and don't worry so much. But yeah. Yeah. I love that. Hey, do your kids think you're you're funny? Uh, I don't know if they think I'm funny, but they're great kids. My kids are really funny, you know. So they're I think they're funny. They're really funny. So yeah. Yeah, I like my kids too. I like yeah. being around them. They're they're fun people. Cool, man. Is there any, yeah. is there anything else that you think we need to include? You know, are there any other words of wisdom uh, to parents or or students or anybody who's I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Like for students, I don't know. Like just enjoy college. Like it's great. I mean, where else do you have the time in your life where you go and you take classes for a few hours a day? You just learn, fill your head with knowledge, you know, and then you go off and just do stuff. It's it's a really awesome, awesome time, you know. But yeah. Yeah, well, that's great, man. You're very kind. Um, Michael Brum yeah. has been with us today. He's a good man. And uh, a good man. I'm excited that we can reconnect and yeah. uh, renew renew this friendship. And just thanks so much for being so generous. And um, I hope we'll we'll do it again. We could do it, you know, off off mic as well. But um, man, you're just a good, you're just a good soul. So hey, right back at you too. I mean, you're doing some great things for kids, you know, like, and I'm like reading you in a second. My, my kid goes to college. You're the man I'm going to turn to for all that stuff. I mean, well, stick around for a sec when, when we're done here. Cause I want to make sure I get your address and, okay. and make sure I can um, come on over and say hi to, uh, to you. Um, I'll fly in on, I'll be there. And stay Wait, where do you live now? Anyway, where do you live? <laughs> I live in the Chicago. I live in Chicago. Oh, hey. So here I'm in I'm in the suburbs, you know. Uh, Chicago's awesome. That's great. I know. Yeah, I love it. It's uh oh. it's been great. I lived in the city for as long as I could, then we moved to the suburbs. Yeah. And um I like it, man. It's 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 been good. I like being in a city and I like yeah. that there's there's just, you know, I, I think having access to just all these uh, all these cultural experiences. Yeah. Like, my kid really likes um like my, my kids like a lot of things, but like we've been into um major league soccer oh really uh, it's been really fun it's the coolest thing it's shocking okay. it's yeah. shocking man like you're you could go to a, i go to the games at soldier field right you go to games it's like maybe it's like 25 30 bucks a ticket you're like next to the field the players right. are really fun to watch and I know should, yeah it's fun like i awesome. i don't know why major league soccer isn't a bigger thing it's yeah. it's like it's a great time. It's amazing. Yeah. So we're doing that. And then, um, you know, jazz, he likes music. Oh, so really? um, we go to like jazz. There's like, yeah. So I think that's the thing also, like for anyone who's in college or just like being in a place where you could just absorb the culture is just like, Hey, I have one more question for you. When you were in Japan and you were doing that stuff overseas, mm-hmm. did that help you to be a better writer? Like did any of those life experiences turn into uh... I I think that I think all those life experiences help you be a better writer just because you're experiencing things and you're seeing different cultures and seeing how different people yeah. do things and like it just helps inform the brain you know that you can then spit out later in some script or whatever that you just have better references or yeah. whatever so I think it does help you know I just think it's like yeah like just doing things even if you don't know why you're doing it you do yeah. it yeah and just do it like yeah you it. right you have that like I don't have that I was too afraid to go abroad I was yeah. so scared to leave home yeah you did. But, yeah, well, I did it in college, but I also had the safety of grad school to do it too, you know. Like, and so, yeah. yeah, it's just like pushing yourself out of the nest a little bit, you know. But that, but it's all really fun and all rewarding, and you will be fine. Things will work out, you know, some in some way or whatever. And I really do believe things will work out eventually. It may not be what you exactly wanted, but things will work out somehow, you know. So, you know, not be afraid to try stuff. Okay, last question. I already sure, said sure. if you're having a terrible day, Brom, it's a bad day. You know, you're feeling totally not confident. Things are just pretty dark. Um, what do you do to help pick yourself up so that you can get to the next day? Yeah, I used to, 
I mean, now it's like spending time with the kids and stuff, but it used to be, I would always do, whenever I had a bad day, I would do two things. I'd watch a scene from uh, Animal Crackers from the Marx Brothers, and then I'd watch a scene from Mighty Python or whatever. It <laughs> feel better. And those are my two things that I always go to. I'd watch those two clips back to back, and then I would just feel better about myself. If I was writing something bad, I'd just feel better about myself. I don't know why. They were not even that great of clips or whatever, but they were just like, ones where Harpo's running around like he's playing baseball, and the Python clip, I think, was just like, what was the Python? It was some Python clip I used to watch, but yeah. Um, those would make, those would make me feel better, but yeah. Right, like you actually have an answer. The fact that yeah. you have like your two clips is just well, that's what I used to do all the time. I don't know why, but I remember every day I'll watch this and I just watch that and I feel a little bit better. Right, because yeah. that's just who you are. Like yeah. that's that's just that's just who you are, man. So all right, this is great. If anyone has questions, we'll include Brum's information and um whether it's your Twitter or social media, whatever, we'll get we'll get all that. And yeah. um, it's just nice for you to be here. So so thank yeah, you for yourself failed, man. And stick around yeah. so I can get your address. Oh, sure, uh, sure, thanks sure. everybody for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, then um just keep listening. I mean, that's probably the right thing to do. Yeah. And um maybe you could let someone know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe <laughs> someone's listening or not. Someone is wearing headphones. Because they're fl- they're wearing headphones, they might be listening to a podcast. So anyway, thanks for being here, everybody. I'm Harlan Cohen, and this has been the Harlan Cohen podcast with Michael Brum. Thanks. Bye, everybody.